Um, Molly Morton is going to be speaking. I just wanted to give a brief word of introduction for Molly. Molly is one of our lead teachers in the preschool uh, uh, down on the lower level there. If she can handle the preschooler, she can surely handle us as a teacher. So welcome Molly Morton. Wow. Oh, that works. That's crazy. So I'm shaking and uh, I'm terrified and also super awkward. So if I look up into my head a lot, just ignore it. It's just a nervous tick and I'm kind of awful. And Anya said I look like a nerd with this microphone and I probably shouldn't even be allowed to talk in full of full grown educated adults. And um, like my only skills in life are tap dancing and standardized tests. And I feel like neither of those are relevant here. And so I'm really, really sorry that I'm taking up space. I'm really sorry. Um, <laughs> So, I gave up self-loathing for Lent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not Lent anymore, so that's good. <laughs> but all those things that I just said are things that run through my head on a regular basis, and I was reinforcing them, of course, by saying them out loud. If you've ever talked to me, it's like every other sentence begins and ends with some, something self-deprecating that I sometimes try to make adorable so people don't hate me, but you know, it's, it's how I talk to myself. And so when I stop talking to myself that way, when I physically bit down on my tongue to stop saying these terrible things to myself, I started telling myself, or listening to the stories that I had been telling myself that were informing these things that were flying out of my mouth. I hadn't paid attention before. The stories I was telling myself were stories about a little girl who maybe had a lot of potential growing up, but somewhere along the way lost that potential or didn't act on it, and is now doomed to die an old, sad failure sad barista lady, I'm gonna be like 85, making drinks, um, with no worth and no purpose. A story about someone who the bullies on the playground were right about, I'm too awkward and fundamentally flawed in some way that I can't quite get at to like ever be really lovable, and that the people in my life who are kind to me, who do nice things to me, don't do that because they really want to, they're not my friends because they want to, they're, do they're my friends because they're really, really, really good people and they feel bad for me. Um, and so those are my stories, and those stories were propped up by stories I was telling about God to myself. Now these aren't the stories I tell when I'm thinking about it intellectually, or when I'm thinking about how God relates to other people, but the God I'm inserting into my terrible stories about myself is really kind of strange and small, and it helps me tell those stories and reinforce them. The stories kind of go something like this, when God's there, this is how God is. God's like, not vengeful or mean or anything, but God's kind of like, oh, no, it's fine that you didn't, like, you're not doing anything with your life. No, 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 don't worry about it. And I'm like, no, like, it's fine. I'm taking up a lot of space. You and I both know I'm taking up a lot of space and oxygen, and I'm American, and I'm only so-so at recycling, so I'm making a lot of garbage. And you should probably give my space to a better model, like a newer model, who was made for the same purpose as me. God is like a creator of little people that, like, circles, but won't screw it up like I did. And God's like, no, 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 it's fine. You can stay. You can stay. It's fine. Because God's like super polite, like infinitely merciful and infinitely polite. And it's like, no, no, it's okay. You can stay. And like, no, it's really okay. I'll just go. Like, and the implications of this, if you like play this out, like, are not so great. Like, I feel like I don't deserve to be here. And I tell myself that story that God doesn't really think so either. And that the only reason I'm still around is because God's kind of nice and doesn't want to hurt my feelings. Um, 
And it, it affects when you think that way about yourself, that people are only kind to you because they pity you, that you're only still here because God's not mean enough to like zap you out of existence. It hurts your relationships. It's, you know, it's hard to have good friendships. It's not, you're not the best person in your family. The stories that I tell myself about myself and the stories that I tell myself about God are powerful. The psalm that Avery read today, Psalm 23, is really, really popular. And it's one of the reasons it's popular is because it tells a story about God that's really true and really good. It's a story that the psalmist is telling themselves about a God who's a shepherd, who walks with the psalmist, who cares for the psalmist. And the psalm is empowering. It makes the psalmist brave. It tells, and it creates this scene where the psalmist is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and then comes out on the other side to a banquet. It's a story that we want to insert ourselves into. It's a story that we want to bring into our lives. That's why we hear it in movies and at funerals. It's a story of God that tells us who we are and who God is in a way that we know is true. It's kind of overdone. And while I'm kind of sick of hearing it, I'm not really sick of hearing it, but well, it's one of those things where I'm like, it's not that obscure. It's been done to death. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love it. It's like my guilty pleasure psalm. I hate that I love it so much. My favorite Bible verse growing up also is about, it's a story. It's a little more esoteric because middle school Molly was like, oh, like this is mysterious. All the other gospels start with like something clear and linear. They tell a story that either begins with a baby or a, you know, list of, gosh, I can't even think of words genealogy thank you yeah and I like John because John begins in this kind of very postmodern way John begins in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and without him not one thing came into being what has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of all people the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not, has not, will not, cannot overcome it. I found that verse so compelling as a child because that little part at the end, every time I read a different translation, it was slightly different. Like, we couldn't settle. We knew the ending was dark, light, not light overcoming the darkness, the darkness not winning. But that tension and that verb, the did not, what has not, will not, cannot, just grabbed me because it meant that the ending was fixed, but somehow there's this part where we can enter into the story where it isn't quite set yet. The story that starts with a word, where the story is the author, is the character, like, then becomes flesh. The story is so multi-layered and mysterious and cool, and I love that. And I think that it's neat to think about the Bible and our story and God's story that way in a way where we can interact with each other in a way where we're part of the story that God has been telling from the beginning. We're coming very slowly, and not all of us are coming out of this in the same way as churches from the period of modernism where we read the Bible as something we're mining for evidence. We want to use verses that can prove that we're right. It's important to prove that God exists. We have to answer. We have to find the right answers. Everything's black and white. But before that, before we were mining it for evidence, it's a series of stories. It's oral tradition. And after that, we'll still have all the stories. 
Now, there is obviously legal, legal document in the Bible. It's a collection. There are histories, there are correspondences, there are po poems, excuse me. But there's mostly just stories. And like all the best stories, God's story is wildly complex. It's fraught with contradiction and questions and spaces where we can enter in. God's story has antagonists that are deeply flawed so we can relate. Noah struggled with addiction. Moses was afraid to speak even when God told him to speak. David was faithful to God but had some trouble being faithful in his personal relationships. Sarah was so jealous that it almost resulted in the death of a mother and child. And we have Jonah who collapses the protagonist with the antagonist. We can relate to that because we're flawed too. But we're also beautiful. We're also protagonists in this story. And even the antagonist, the Pharaoh whose heart hardens and then softens and then hardens and softens again when he's deciding whether or not to let the Israelites go. We're not really sure if that's God or if that's Pharaoh and sometimes that feels like us. Jesus tells stories where we can identify with all of the characters. The parables are stories where it's not really always clear which character we're supposed to identify with. When we tell the story of the Good Samaritan, where the traveler on the road is attacked by robbers and the priests and the Levite, who are supposed to be the good guys, pass by on the other side of the road, and then the Samaritan comes and helps the person who's been attacked and puts them up in the inn for the night. I want to say I identify with the Samaritan, but I've passed cars on the side of the road more times than I can count and told myself stories about how it's fine because I'm a woman and I'm alone and that wouldn't be safe or I shouldn't call anyone because they for sure have a cell phone and their cousin's probably a mechanic and is on their way right now to fix the car so it's fine and I'm busy and they wouldn't want me anyway. I can identify with all of the characters in that story. That's why the parables are neat. That's how God tells the stories. We tell stories this way in Sunday school. Recently, we told the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a parable, and so when we tell stories in Sunday school, we bring out this parable box, and it's like covered in gold paper, and we use our mysterious voices because this is how we talk in Sunday school. Um, we say, oh my goodness, it's gold. It looks like a treasure. Parables are kind of like treasures. And then we say, oh, it's in a box. It could be a gift. Parables are gifts. They've been given to us before we were born, and they're ours no matter what. No one can take them away from us. They're ours forever. God's story is like that. It's a treasure. It's something that we have from the beginning, no matter what. And then we tell the story some more. We go to lift the lid of the box. But before we do, we hold it back and we say, sometimes when we tell a parable, we can't get in right away. We come to it and it won't let us in. And that's okay, because it's still ours. And we get to come back over and over and over again. And one day it will open for us. God's story is for us, even if we don't get it right. Even if we don't know the right answers to the study questions at the end. God's story isn't closed. God's story is open and we can enter into it. So we tell the story in Sunday school with big spaces. We let them ask questions. We ask wondering questions and we don't tell them the answers because that's how they take ownership of the story. I'll pull out a piece of felt and throw it on the ground and say, I wonder what this could be. I know what it is. It's supposed to be the desert. The children are hungry, so they say cookie. We roll with cookie. The kids have imaginations. 
that haven't told them yet that they're not part of the story, that the story is already closed and fixed and their only job is to get it right, to say the right answers about the story. The children know that the story belongs to them. They participate in the story. We create the spaces where they can enter in and encounter God's story. And God's story is big enough that it can grow to embrace their stories. Their stories are part of God's story. And it makes perfect sense. If we're the body of Christ, then all of us are part of God's story. And all of us, it's our job to tell that story along with God. It's like an oral tradition, but we tell it with our lives along with our words. It's a beautiful concept, but it still leaves leaves me with the question, and I'm sure a lot of people, if I'm telling terrible stories to myself, if I'm supposed to be this character in God's story, if I'm supposed to be someone who's telling God's story, and I tell myself these terribly anxious stories, stories that can hurt me and hurt other people, how do I know I'm getting it right? Because while I don't think I have to have exactly the right answers, there's a risk if I tell a story that does harm. It's a problem. It's a problem probably that modernism saw, and that's what it was addressing. The way that I handle it personally, and this sounds so super like cliche church lady answer, but is through prayer. In my personal life, I use prayer practices and spiritual disciplines to create a space where God can enter and interrupt my stories about myself and reshape them into a story that God is telling about hope and redemption. We had a house church before we found this beautiful place. We were in between churches and we had some friends who weren't sure they had a spiritual home. So we were doing a house church in our house and we didn't know what we were doing. So it was real awkward. And the logistics of house church are very strange. Like trying to like decide on how to do communion with like six people, eight people in your living room is odd. Um, But one of the things we did was we practiced Lectio Divina, which we've talked about here. And I think we kind of do a really truncated, kind of collapsed version of it when we do our reflection. It's where you read a Bible verse or story, and you read it over and over and over again. And the first time you just listen, and then the second time you create the scene, so you put yourself in it. Like, if I'm on a boat, I would feel the wood of the planks, and I would hear, I would pay attention to what I was hearing, maybe the masts creaking and smell the salt air. You engage all your senses, and you sink deeper and deeper into the story. And then you listen again, and you wait for a word to pop out at you, or a phrase. And then you listen again, and you try to feel how it makes you feel, and then you listen again, and you bring that to God. And it's a way of entering God's story and letting God enter yours. And one of the times we did it, we decided to do Psalm 23, which I was a little bit against because it was so cliche, and I wanted to be cool and obscure. And so I knew what I was going to be hearing. I knew what to expect. I was depressed, so the valley of the shadow of death was going to be where it was going to be taking place because depression or maybe the green pastures because, you know, God's nicer than I am to myself. And that's not where I happened. First of all, I dropped down in a medieval castle. This was what I'm imagining. And I was like, this is not even historically accurate imagination. Like, good job. Like, come on, really? And so already my expectations for how this is going to go are like deeply defied. And then the word I heard, I expected to hear shadow of death because I'm angsty or maybe comfort because God is not as angsty as I am. And what I heard instead was anoint. You have anointed my head with oil. 
And I was just like, absolutely not. Nope, nope. Anointing means you're special. It means you're worthy. People who are anointed get important jobs to do. People who are anointed are in charge. They're kings. Sometimes they're priests. Absolutely not. I am none of those things. And in, in real life, I'm in my living room around a table with flickering candles and a bunch of millennials like being all meditative. And I am like shoving myself back up against the wall, like trying to duck away because in my vision now, there, in this castle, there's a thumb coming down with oil on it, ready to anoint me. And I'm like, ah! I'm terrified. And in the vision, I run away. I run straight into the valley of the shadow of death and I keep on going. And then we have repeated like times where we do this with new psalms, we, we do this Lectio Divina again, and every time the story just expands. So now I'm running and I have like this little cottage in the woods because I'm a hermit, because I'm hiding from God, and I can hear where I'm supposed to be, which is temple gates, I think, and people are like worshiping God, it must have been in some psalm. And I'm all the way over here hiding, and someone's knocking at the door, so I'm going further and further into the house. It got so intense that I started to keep a journal with the word every time the word anointing was used in the Bible and try to figure out why it bothered me so much. And I'm still not sure. But what I do know is recently, not super recently, I have a weird concept of time, but recently-ish, Psalm 23 was read as one of our reflections at church. And for the first time, I got past that part and I didn't resist it. I got all the way to the part where, let's see, Ah, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord. God had finally gotten through to me. I had to tell, or had to listen to God telling me that story, that I was worthy of something, over and over and over again before I even began to believe it. I had to bring my story to God and let God interrupt and reshape it, but our stories are really strong, so it took a lot of time. It's even more powerful when I do it with other people. So our Lenten practices, where you have the prayer beads, if anyone was here for the prayer beads. And either way, you have your six people that you pray for, is one of our practices. And at least some of the people every year are people that I struggle with, either because I find them to be abrasive or pushy or presumptuous, just for whatever reason. And then, so what I do when I pray for these people is, I imagine myself in a space, so I'm creating space for God to enter in. Sometimes, one time it was out in that hallway there on a bench, one time it was on a hill with a tree, one time it was inexplicably in a darkened basement with metal folding chairs, I don't know. And the people enter the room one at a time. And for the first time, I don't see them the way my stories about them tell me they are. For the first time, I see people hesitating, these people who I think are so pushy or whatever or I see them vulnerable. I see them feeling insecure. I have to invite them into the room. And I can feel the presence of God there, heavy in the air. And I know that God is present. And somehow, seeing these people's vulnerability, and sometimes I even see things about their lives that I didn't know, and it turned out to be true afterwards. It's reshaped how I think about them. It allows me to pray for them. It gives me more compassion and empathy and love. And so, I think that's how I know that that's God's story and not mine. Because that's the story that results in love and compassion. That's a story that's the story that God's been telling us since the beginning about light winning, about love. Later on in John, the same book of John, John talks about how they will know you're my disciples because of your love, 
That's the evidence, the fruit, the peace, the compassion. If it's important to do this individually, it's even more important that we do this as a group, collectively, in our communities. The stories we can tell communally have been terrible, and we've brought God into some of the worst stories that humanity has to tell. Most recently, Manifest Destiny, American Exceptionalism, White Supremacy, those are all, we've found a way to tie them to God and to our faith, and it's our job to extract them. It's terribly important that we pay attention to those stories and let God interject and help tell us a better story. As communities, you can tell when a church is doing this. I've been at lots of churches that tell a story about a vengeful God who's really interested in who's in and who's out. Where these stories are even stronger, there, there are shards of them everywhere in all our communities. But when the community is not, when the rituals are telling those stories, then there's no space to let God come and reshape them. And you can feel it. You don't feel the love. The fruits aren't quite there. There isn't that peace. There's anxiety. And when we use our rituals to create space, because we're all ritual creatures, it's what we do. We're going to create rituals whether we mean to or not. And they're never empty because we always bring ourselves to them. We bring our stories to them and we insert our stories into our rituals. And in turn, those rituals tell us what we value They tell us what matters over and over and over again. So we have to intentionally use those to shape space where God can enter in and our stories can encounter God. And when we do that individually, and when we do that as a community, then we get to become something more. We get to become storytellers and characters in the counter-narrative that God is telling that's saying that all these stories we're telling ourselves about destruction, about how the powerful are going to win, about how our legitimacy is based on how good we are or how right we get it, those stories are wrong. God's telling a story about redemption, and God wants us to tell that story too with our whole lives, not just our words, but with our rituals, with our communities, with what we do. God is telling a story that ends with light overcoming darkness. And in the meantime, we all have a role to play in helping to tell that story where God has the power through love to redeem all of us and to anoint all of us and to tell us about our worth and to be faithful to us. Um, Do we have time for a reflection? Okay. Um, So I think maybe what we'll do for the reflection, if you're willing... (laughs) is we'll do Psalm 23 again, because why the heck not? Um, (laughs) And we don't have time to do the entirety of Lectio Divina, but if you're into that sort of thing, maybe continue it on your own, because I found that over time, if I just keep going back to stories in the same way, God reshapes my story about myself over and over again in beautiful ways. So I'll read Psalm 23, and just pay attention to the scene Put yourself inside of it. Create a space where God can enter in. And maybe interrupt a story you're telling yourself. Maybe a phrase will pop out at you that you weren't expecting. Maybe something that contradicts something about yourself or the world or about God. That's a story that isn't about love, that's about harm. The story, it's a story that hasn't resulted in peace. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
and leads me beside still waters. He revives my soul and guides me along right pathways for his name's sake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You spread a table before me in the presence of those who trouble me. You have anointed my head with oil, and my cup is running over. Surely, your goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Those who have ears, let them hear. Notice a phrase or a word that pops out at you. You can take a minute now to notice how it makes you feel. Notice your reaction to it. And then either now or later, bring that reaction to God and ask God to reshape it, to show you more about it. Ask God to tell God's story to you and through you and with you.
Thank you, Molly. That was lovely. <clears throat>